0: Oh, so good! I love being part of a church family, and that's what we are. This is not just a place where we gather and watch, but we get to do life together, to encourage one another, to lift one another up, to to serve one another. And you know, as we do gather, a quick announcement: I want to let you know that though Family Camp is only a week out, we have a few spaces available. Let's give it up for Family Camp! I heard an applause that was rising. You know, it's kind of a misleading. Title, you know, family camp, and it gives the impression uh, wrongly that it's just four families. No, we believe that we as a church are a family, and so we as a church, as a church family, have a camp that we go to up at Santa Cruz. All are welcome, and we have spots available Would love for you, even if finances are an issue. Come talk to the leadership team. Uh, Information is in your bulletin about how to connect with them, I believe. Is there going to be some leaders from family camp out on the patio today? Oh, look, Fiona. No, but you will. Apparently, am I just tasking that to you, Fiona? Do you have time for that to connect? Fiona with the, oh, and Richard right here. So Richard making his way, Fiona. But all the information is in your bulletin. If you want to give in any way towards scholarships, for example, we've got a number of families who can't make it for any, for a variety of reasons. Uh, When we have our uh, tithes and offerings later on, perhaps if you wanna give an offering above uh, your normal giving, you can write maybe family camp on that check. Uh, You can direct your giving in that way. We would not want anyone to not go because of finances. And it's a great time where people get away for a week and got a great speaker and worship and ultimately to experience just echoes of what it's gonna be like in God's presence in the new heavens the new earth where we are whole as a family. And right now as we gather, we, we come together again, as I said earlier, not just in person but also online. We have many that join us every week. I want to say welcome to you. Some listen after the fact. And we're in a series that it kind of started back in the fall, actually, where we've been going with the nation of Israel, so to speak, on their exodus journey. And that journey not only covered 40 years, but it, covered the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, and the first five chapters of Joshua. I promise we're going to get to the promised land the first Sunday in August, but we find ourselves right now towards the end of the 40-year journey where God has not only rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, but he has brought them through the wilderness, has given them an identity, has given them a purpose, and he's trying to remind them that I want to lift you up, God says, so that you will lift each other up. I want to lift you up as a nation so you will lift up other nations. That promise that God gave to Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. And they, like us, forget who God is, who we are forget the life that God called us into and so even though we look back thousands of years at this story this has such relevance for us today in many ways all of us are on our own exodus journey where God calls us out of bondage not just to freedom but freedom with him in Christ to be lifted up so that we would lift others up I'm going to read a long section of Scripture, no, uh, Numbers 27. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them up. If you don't have a Bible, that red book in the pew in front of you, or if you're in the front row, there's a little cubby right behind your leg. It's got a number of books, but that red one is our pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take it home with you, have it speak truth and hope in your life. If you're joining us online, I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. It's page 128 in your pew Bibles. And Numbers 27 gives us a little glimpse at the God who lifts up. Hear this, the word of the Lord. Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Makir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manassehite clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers, and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. You shall say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers." If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsmen of his clan, and he shall possess it. It shall be for all the Israelites a statute and ordinance, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abraham range and see the land that I am given to the Israelites. When you have seen it, You also shall be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled with me. You did not show my holiness before their eyes at the waters. These are the waters of Meribeth Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint someone over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like a sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, "'Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand upon him. Have him stand before Eleazar, the high priest and all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. You shall give him some of your authority.'" so that all the congregation of the Israelites may obey. But he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the decision of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the Israelites with him, the whole congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar, the priest and the whole congregation. He laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord had directed through Moses. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together for a moment. God, you lift us up or so you promise. I imagine that many have experienced, like I've experienced, moments in where we don't feel lifted up. We don't feel encouraged. We feel empty, we feel dried out. So God, I pray that your spirit would be more powerful than anything I've prepared. And would it be the power of your word that speaks to my heart, to our heart, that transforms us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I I truly believe that every time we interact with one another, we do one of two things. There's no neutral ground, there's no uh, middle, We either lift people up, or we tear them down. I do not believe that we interact with one another in such a way that it's truly neutral. In the slightest of ways, even if it's just a a micromillimeter, we either lift people up or we tear them down. And the reality is that some of us, we remember where we were in the 80s when someone tore us down, and we're still carrying that today. Some of us think of something that someone did to lift us up and it's given us hope, it's given us courage. I imagine there's people here on this planet that are walking around encouraged courage because of somehow you lifted them up at some point that you might not even be aware of. And I'm guessing as humans, we want to you know go through life not tearing people down, but rather we want to be people that are known, that have the reputation not just in words but also in practice as being people that lift others up. In fact, if we are gathered here, likely we want resources, we want to be equipped, not only to lift others up, but to be lift up ourselves in our words, in our actions, with our body language, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, and so on. And Some of you are taking notes on paper or on your phone, or you've got great memory, but everything today can kind of be summed up in this phrase. That you will only lift others up if and only if you first have been lifted up. You will lift others up if and only if you first have been lifted up. You know, uh, on the planes when you go get the thing that you open up, what do they call those things? I'm like post paper, I try to get rid of paper. Uh, I'm going digital brochure, security. What is that thing, you know, that you open it up? What's it called? Pamphlet. pamphlet. I haven't said the word pamphlet in like five years. <laughs> okay, pamphlet. The thing, you open it up and you open it up, and there's like the picture of when the oxygen falls down, you know, right? And now every other airline, because they know people don't open those things up, they're, they've got the video or the person, you know, the steward who acts it out. And always there's this, uh, you know, recommendation, encouragement that parents put on the mask before, put it on the kids, you know. Put it on yourself before you put on your husband, he's gonna be freaking out, right? You know, you you take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. There's this sense that if we are not filled up, if we are not lifted up, if we don't feel loved, if we don't feel encouraged, if we don't feel like we have any resources, The last thing we're gonna be able to do is to lift others up, to encourage others, to pour out of ourselves. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take a look at this text and not only see that there is a God who lifts up, but actually there's a God who gives us the resources so that we can be people that lift others up, so that we first can be lifted up ourselves. Now I wanna show you how radical this is. Now we might read over this and say, wow, that's a lot of names, and how interesting, what a backwards culture where women couldn't get the inheritance. Let me remind you this. This was written thousands of years ago, and at this moment in human history, what God did in that moment was radically countercultural. There was no culture that existed during that time that lifted up women. There was no culture that made provisions for women if they had no brothers to get the inheritance from their father it was a very male dominated paternalistic culture and so when god says moses when these sisters have come forward and though culture says they shouldn't get the inheritance that their father has left which by the way if you trace the lineage goes all the way back to Abraham, direct descendant of Abraham. God says it is right for them to ask for their inheritance. It's right for them to keep their family name. And so in that moment, God does a radical countercultural thing, and he lifts up women. But he goes beyond that. In the second section, he does something that we might skip over, we might miss, but... At that point in human history, there was no culture around the world that lifted up the next generation while the current generation was in power. The next queen would become queen not until the old queen had died. The new pharaoh, the new king, the new leader would never rise to power until the previous leader had died, And here in this moment, God says to Moses, the appointed leader of all, he says, I want you while you are alive to lift up the next generation. I want you to impart your authority. I want you to give your, your seat of power over the next generation. And we might, you know, in a modern American Western worldview in 2019, miss the radical nature of all of this. When in actual fact, we've got to understand that at this point in human history, God spared no expense in lifting up the people that nobody else lifted up. And I could say, well, let's be like that. Let's, you know, let's let's be people that lift up women. Yes, and let's lift up the next generation. Great, let's go out and do it. Let's pray. And some of you might be like, no, 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 I want more. Some of you might be like, sweet, we can get to brunch earlier. But I'm telling you, if if we move out into this world, even being resolute, even being passionate, even having uh, an emboldened sense of duty to lift others up, if we draw upon our own strength, our own resources, our own wisdom, if we take a humanistic approach at doing that, I'm telling you, we will never be able to lift others up in the way that they need to be lifted up. And in actual fact, we will never lift ourselves up. I, w- I want some, you know, little homework exercise. I would love for you this week, I'd love for you to, to take a look at the news. I'd love for you to, to look out on the scope of the world right now And I want you to look at how there are things going on in this world that reflect the heart of God, the heart of God that longs to lift people up, those on the margins, those that formerly have been cast aside, those that uh, have been overlooked, those that have been oppressed, to look at things around the world that, that echo the heart of God, but look for ways in which... We as humans are trying to lift this person or this group or even this nation up in ways where at the same time other people are torn down. When you look out across the landscape of the world, there is a lot of movements out there lifting people up. That echoes the heart of God. But what doesn't echo the heart of God? is doing so while tearing somebody else down. That is a broken, humanistic approach to lifting other people up. I will do it by tearing somebody else down. Now, what I'm not saying is that people in power need to step aside and make room. I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. I'm not saying that we should make space for But what I'm saying is that whenever there's an approach where one group or one person gets torn down so that somebody else can get lifted up, that doesn't reflect the heart of God. And we're going to be empty as human beings if we approach it like that. What's fascinating about this this passage is that it finds itself in the context of this grand narrative But if you were to read it from beginning to end, it would basically go like this, that God reveals God's self to God's people. He lifts them up. He says, now that I've lifted you up, I've given you an identity. I've given you an inheritance. I've given you a a purpose. Now I want you to lift one another up, and I want you to go out in this world and lift other people up as well. And they, like us, forget. They begin to do things their way like we do things our way. And there's consequences for that. And ultimately, though God has lifted them up to lift others up, they begin to tear people down in order to feel themselves lifted up. How many of you, maybe maybe it was a, a family gathering, maybe it was in the context of a, a roommate, maybe you saw it on set or in a business setting, maybe you saw it you know, somewhere out in public, how many of you have seen somebody else tearing somebody else down so that they would feel lifted up. How many of you have ever seen that in person? Isn't that one of the, the ugliest things on the planet? And it seems like we do it. It's not just others that do it. We, we, we do it. There's moments where we can be sophisticated about it. We can be subtle about it. We can use the right language around it. We can get into an echo chamber with people who believe things just like us and do it in ways that we get affirmation for doing it. But many of us, we, we tear people down. Can you believe those people? And we do it online. We do it in our hearts. We do it in person. It's because we as humans get wrapped up into this world because I truly believe at the heart of hearts that we, are our, our soul, Is dissatisfied and it's always been that way and in fact what I want to do is I want to show you one of the weirdest verses in numbers and I want to show you how that little passage actually is like a signpost that points to one of the most famous medical images in the world and perhaps one of the most famous scripture passages of all time And how this weird little section of numbers, which we'll go to in a moment, can actually unlock for you the depth of a well that you can draw from to be lifted up and to lift others up as well. So, if you're curious, let's go to Numbers 21. Numbers 21, I didn't want to skip over it. Uh, A couple verses back from where we started today. Numbers 21. 123 in your pew Bibles. Thank you, Tim. And in verse 4, let me read. Numbers 21, verse 4. For Mount Hor they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, but the people became impatient along the way. Familiar, right? Not only for them, but for us. This has been 40 years, by the way, wandering in the wilderness, They're constantly impatient. They constantly grumble. They're constantly saying, we don't have enough. Here's how they do it here. Verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Let's pause right there. We've got no food except for this food that you've given us. What's this food, this miserable food? It's manna. I always forget that. Oh, yeah. I thought it was just in the book of Exodus for like just a season. No, they've been eating this thing called manna, which God provides every morning, enough for the day, enough for them to gather, to make a food. For 40 years, they've eaten this stuff. No wonder they're complaining. (laughs) I mean, even if you had your favorite dish every day for 40 years. But basically, here's what they're saying. God, we have no food except for the food you've given us. (laughs) We have no blessings except for the blessings you've given us. We have no provision except for what you've provided. I mean, you follow me here, right? You know. I mean, it's like in that moment, there was a sickness. There was a disease of not enoughness what we have is not enough. We need more. And what's so fascinating is verse 6, then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. What? I have friends here with me, Drew. They're here for the first time. I said this was an encouraging church. The title was the God who lifts up. You're talking about God sending serpents to kill people? What are you doing? There's always more than meets the eye. There's so much more under the surface. Now what's so fascinating, hang with me here, this language here of God sent poisonous snakes. The word poisonous is the word seraph. Gonna hear you say seraph? It's a Hebrew word, it's the same root word where we get the word seraphim. And if you know scripture, you know that that was one of the types of angels. Seraph literally means fiery one. And so here God sends these fiery ones, these serpents who scholars tell us, Hebrew scholars, Jewish scholars tell us that when they look at the history that these type of snakes, that when they bit people, that immediately it felt like fire at the spot. But what's fascinating is that that fire, these fiery ones, that that spread through their body and they began to develop a very, very high fever where though they would drink water, they would be insatiable. They had this thirst that could not be quenched and some of them died. And what Hebrew scholars tell us is that there's this truth that God wanted to impress upon the nation of Israel that this new physical disease which could be healed was actually a symbol, was a sign, was something that pointed to a spiritual disease that they had been living with, that they had this insatiable hunger that was burning them up, that even God's provision wasn't enough. And to better understand this little moment right here, we've got to look back in Scripture and we've got to look ahead from this moment. So let's go back just for a moment and then we'll look ahead. If you would go back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to tie all this together. I love the the truth and the beauty of Scripture that the more I've allowed the Spirit of God to, to guide me through it, to lead me through it, especially in community, we begin to see that there's these themes, these threads that all tie together that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But in Genesis 3, it speaks about another snake, another serpent. Genesis 3. This is in the Garden of Eden. This is where all is right, where there is shalom. Not just the absence of war, but we are whole in our relationship with God, with each other, with creation, with ourselves. God had put the first humans in the Garden of Eden, and people were thriving. It was all that we've ever longed for. And God's enemy in the form of a serpent comes in. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's pause right there. The serpent, first temptation, goes after her memory. It's no wonder that the word remember outnumbers the word believe five times to one in Scripture. The word remember outnumbers the word trust two to one in Scripture. I say it all the time because we forget it. I've probably said that more than anything else I've said from the pulpit. Again and again and again. We forget. We're forgetful people. And so the serpent goes after her memory and says, to paraphrase, all this, it's not really yours, is it? I mean, you can't enjoy any of these trees, right? And she says, no, no, no. Take a look. Verse 2, the woman said of the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. So in that moment, she remembers correctly and says, no, 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 this has all been given to us for food. And yet there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one of two named trees in the garden. The other was the tree of life. That when you eat from that tree, the tree of life, you will live forever. And she says, We can eat from all these trees. Think, no, this is good, but there's that, yeah, that's true. There's one thing that we can't eat of. And the serpent, to paraphrase, basically says, And you're telling me you're satisfied with this arrangement? You're telling me that that's enough? And the first humans looked at that one thing, the one thing that they didn't have, and I can so relate to this. And they thought, oh, if I just had that one thing that I don't yet have, then I'm going to be whole. Then there's peace. And they went after it. And things began to unravel. They were filled with shame. The relationship with God was fractured. The relationship with each other was fractured. The relationship with creation was fractured. The relationship with themselves was fractured. And ever since then, every single human being born on the planet has fallen into that trap of always wanting that one thing. Once I just get that part, then I'll have arrived. And then we get that part, and it's like, no, that didn't do it. If I just move into that zip code, then we do it. And it's like, but there's that street, and then that street, and then there's that house. If I just get in that relationship, if I just have kids, if I just get healthy again, we get so stuck in doing what every human being has ever gotten stuck in. The nation of Israel, back then in the scriptures, and us today, we long for the thing that which we don't have. And we think that if we get that thing, we will be lifted up. And so we have this insatiable hunger, this insatiable thirst that spiritually is drying us up, that has us emblazoned, Like a black hole seeking affirmation, seeking praise, seeking things, and there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of you because they've tapped into that insatiable hunger. And many of us, we struggle when other people are lifted up if we ourselves are not lifted up and we live lives with bitterness and frustration in our hearts and minds, if they get the job that we don't get, we actually say, <laughs> stupid directors, that stupid boss. Like, I could do so much better than that. In our hearts and our minds, we tear them down to feel ourselves better, and we end up at the end of the day down, not lifted up. And so, again, in Numbers 21, God is simply saying, I want to physically show you what spiritually is your disease. Let's go back to Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, at first glance, this odd, odd, odd passage. Verse 7, their eyes are open. They realize because of this physical disease, the spiritual reality of what's going on, because they say the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, By speaking against the Lord and against you, pray the Lord to take away the serpents from us. In other words, they repent in that moment. They realize that what is happening physically is really just a spiritual thing. And they go to Moses and appeal to God, rescue us, save us, heal us. Now, if you thought that part was weird, take a look at this. Let's push in. We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And this is how God heals them. This is how God rescues them. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. What? So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. So basically, God is saying, I want you to take the very thing that has engulfed you in fire, that is killing some of you, put a dead version of it up high, and when people just look at that dead thing, they're going to be healed. And what's so fascinating is that you can actually trace this imagery back into Sumerian culture. You can actually find this image even in Greek mythology. But scholars tell us that this is the first incident in human history where there was a pole of a snake wrapped around it. And now, if you look at every single EMT, every single, you know. Vehicle, what do they call those things? Ambulance. Ambulance. I'm struggling today. It's participatory. It's like ad-libs, right? Mad-libs. You know, the, the thing, the symbol, and it's got the pole and it's got the snake. It comes from this. It's one of the most famous images of healing around the globe. And, and technicians, they wear it. They've got badges on their clothes and they're on ambulances. Thank you very much. And it's this, it's this fascinating, and it has its origins here. In the Samaritan culture, you can read online, and the Greek mythology had images of this. And it still is like the weirdest thing where God says, I want you to lift up this dead thing. When people look to it, they will be healed. What does that mean? Good thing God says, let me tell you what it means. It took some time, but he did. In fact, many of us, we know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. It's one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, I mean, we see it at football games. We even see it at Raider games. It actually pops up, Rams. I mean, it's it, we see it. We see it everywhere. John 3:16. But how many of you know what is said just before John 3:16? Jesus. Well, well, let's take a look. John 13:3, 14, 15. We love for God so loved the world. Well, what is the alley-oop for the dunk of John 3:16? What's the softball lob to the home run that is John 3, 16? It's God himself explaining what the serpent on the stick is all about. John 3, 14 and 15. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him May have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. I'll paraphrase. Jesus is saying there is a sickness spiritually that everyone on the planet has. And back then, God, out of love, gave the people an image of death. Lifted up the death that actually was spiritually tearing up their soul. That for them, when they looked at it, they were healed. You know what all of that meant? Jesus says, it means me, the son of man, will be lifted up in death on the cross. And the image of me on the cross, hang with me here, is the image of the serpent. Death itself all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of humanity longing for more, all of the ways in which temptation has caught us and we've chosen our way rather than God's way. The Apostle Paul says that though Jesus was never sinful on the cross, he became sin. And in his death, our brokenness, he took upon himself our iniquities, Our grief, all the things of which we've done to tear others down, to tear ourselves down, Jesus took it upon himself so that, Jesus says, when we look at him, when we just look at him, we're healed spiritually. When we look at him in faith, the Apostle Paul says that this sin that he takes, he exchanges it for his righteousness, his life, his love, his peace. And Colossians 3.1 talks about that moment and says this, now you, you've been lifted up with Christ. And now that you've been lifted up with Christ, set your heart and your mind and your ways on God's ways. That when you put your faith and trust in Jesus in that moment, you are lifted up in a way a job will never lift you up. When you look to Christ, put your faith in him, you are lifted up in a way a doctor can never lift you up. When you look to Christ in faith, you are lifted up in a way a human relationship will never lift you up. I'm telling you, when you allow the truth of what Christ has done for you and how he's lifted you up, he's given you an identity, a purpose. He calls you his masterpiece in Ephesians 2.10. You are a child of God and you shine like a star in the world, Philippians 2.15. These truths that we shared about the kids are true of you. And when you harness that truth, and when you allow God to lift you up, watch what happens when you walk into a job interview with the peace and the security that no matter what happens, they can't take this away from you. Watch what happens when you allow God to lift you up to walk into the doctor's office wondering, Am I now cancer-free or not? Watch what happens with the confidence that you have. When you walk into that place, no matter what they say, when you know God's promises are true, that death never has the last word. Watch what happens when you go into a relationship that is fractured and broken, and you want to ask for forgiveness, and you have no idea if they're going to forgive you. Watch what happens when you've been lifted up by God, and you go in, and your whole world doesn't depend on whether they let you back into their life or not. So when you get lifted up by God, I'm telling you, you will be a full, deep well of God's love and grace and purpose and mercy. Then you can go out in the world and lift others up. But it has to start by being lifted up by God. Now, you don't lift yourself up. I love 1 John, it says this, we love others because God first loved us. We can now lift others up because God first lifted us up. You don't have to be somebody with a great pedigree to be part of this. That's the power of God. It was a snowy day on January 6, 1890. And there was a 15 year old, it was his habit, family made him do it, he was walking to church. And as he was walking to church, it was not just a storm, I mean, it was a blizzard, and he couldn't even physically make it all the way to his church, and so he thought, I got to get out of the storm, and he saw a small, tiny Methodist church, and so he decided to walk into that Methodist church. He walks in, there's only 12 people there, sits down, he's got a lot going on in his life, and he's just sitting around, and he's thinking, what's going on? I mean, when's this going to start? And he hears this murmuring and he puts two and two together and he realizes that the preacher of that church didn't even make it that day. The weather was so bad. And so he's about to get up and leave when actually somebody from the congregation of 12 who is like a shoemaker gets up and walks to the pulpit. Somebody who had never preached before. That'd be like if me or Kim or Mike or Kara, or anybody that preaches here doesn't show up, and and you're like, well, we gotta we gotta do something. And w- imagine if somebody walked up. They did that that day. And that person opened their Bible to Isaiah 45:22, and it's God speaking, and God says, "Look to me. Look to me, and you will be saved." And this shoemaker in a crowd of 12, basically goes on to say, you don't need skill to look. You don't need money to look. You don't need to have a great reputation just to look. It's just, it's just looking. So look to God. And this person didn't give an eloquent sermon and basically said that on loop for about 10 minutes. And then he finished and he closed his Bible and he looked at the 15 year old. He said, Son, you look miserable. And so now this 15 year old's like, I'm not used to being called out in church. What on earth? And so he's like flustered. And then the guy presses in. And he says, And you're going to stay miserable until you obey this text. Look to God, He'll rescue you. Look to God on the cross. Look to Jesus dying for you. Look to Jesus being rose from the grave for you. Look to Jesus at the right hand of the Father for you. Look to Jesus giving you his spirit. And in that moment, that 15-year-old, something happened. He described it as if the the heavens were parted. His soul was lifted up. And for the first time in his life, Charles Spurgeon came to Christ from a shoemaker simply pointing to the word of God. And if any of you know who Charles Spurgeon is, this great man of faith who has written, who has preached, who has lifted up so many people in the name of Jesus, he was miserable because he described it as he would show up to church trying to figure out how he could do the right thing to lift himself up, and he not allowed to that moment God to lift him up. And it was in that moment of simply just looking in faith, his heart and soul to Jesus that everything melted away. I have no idea how you need to be lifted up today. But I know that I am woefully underqualified to lift you up. And at the same time, I know that God is vastly overqualified to lift you up. My prayer is that you would look to Jesus, let him do the work that only he can do. And from that lifted up place, may you live a life that lifts others up with how you live, with how you love. Let's pray. God, we wanna respond in ways That are, on one hand, authentic to us and honoring to you. And in the midst of that, there's also ways in which we need to step out in faith that feel new or different. So, God, I pray that you would break through our comfort zones and help us see ourselves, our lives, from your perspective and would you move us boldly in our hearts, and our minds, our very beings to move out of this world lifted up by you as ambassadors for your love. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you choose, not only us, but you chose to give your life on our behalf, to make us whole. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and we say together,